Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of the coming kingdom of heaven. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. All right, so we're going to be starting in chapter 20. And um, the type of arguments that we're going to look at tonight, all pretty much all the arguments fall under... I can just kind of summarize everything that we're going to look at tonight. You remember we've been working with Clement as he's rebuking uh, what's going on, the situation in Corinth, and he's trying to correct this schism that has taken place. And he wants his readers to uh, reject the new leadership that has risen up and thrown off the old guard. And he's going to make uh, an appeal to uh, everything needs to be done in its proper way. And apparently the schism, the revolt, the church split, whatever it was in Corinth, wasn't done in its proper way. And because it wasn't done in its proper way, it can't be godly, can't be from Hashem. And so he's going to make an appeal to nature. Now, I have to explain, this is a rhetorical model that we see all the time in Greek argumentation, uh, like the Greek schools of philosophy and teaching and uh, argumentation, uh, which were also, of course, the model that Rome follows. So, you know, you get a Roman rhetorician to stand up. He's going to make an argument and uh, he's going to he's going to appeal to logic. He's going to appeal. Uh, he's going to bring examples of no of, of, from virtue noble examples of the past, this guy, that guy. We've seen Clement doing that already. We've seen he's been appealing to the noble virtue, the noble examples of our biblical heroes and the apostolic heroes. And uh, our, in, in this form of argumentation, it's common to make an appeal to nature, to say, just look at the natural order. This is how things go in the natural order. And, you know, we find that this is still a common mode of argumentation in our world today. It's very ordinary for people, you know, to say, well, what are things like in the natural world? Can we bring that to apply here? Anyway, so that's what's going to be happening here. We're going to make this appeal to nature. And so we're going to start in chapter 20, where he says, remember, in the last chapter, he closed with saying, let's keep God in view. Let's see him in our mind. Let's look with the eyes of our soul on his patient will. And let's note how free from anger he is toward all his creation. Now he's going to make this appeal to creation. The heavens move at his direction and obey him in peace. Day and night complete the course assigned by him, neither hindering the other. The sun, the moon, the choir of stars circle in harmony with the courses assigned to them according to his direction, without any deviation at all. The earth bearing fruit in proper seasons in its fulfillment of his will brings forth food in full abundance for both men and beasts and all living things which are upon it, without dissension or altering anything he has decreed. You see, they don't argue. They don't fight about this sort of thing. Everything follows its natural path, its natural preordained order following the will of God exactly this is this is how he's arguing I don't know about you but these opening passages reminded me of a few things first of all it reminded me of Psalm 19 which uh, he's going to actually sum up this section with a quote quotation from Psalm 19 what is Psalm 19 Psalm 19 is the heavens declare the glory of God that Psalm you know the the stars uh, run in their courses and 
so forth. This also reminded me of the blessing before the Shema that we say in the evening. The, for Mariv prayers, the first blessing before the Shema, which goes, he orders the stars in their heavenly constellations as he wills, removing light before dark and dark before light. He causes day to pass and brings night and moves the seasons one after another and, and so on. The earth bearing fruit in its proper season, right? Verse 5, moreover, the incomprehensible depths of the abysses and the indescribable judgments of the underworld are constrained by the same ordinances. Now, this sounds a little spooky. What are the depths of the abysses? Well, this is a common biblical way of speaking of, it's a cosmology of uh, the earth is kind of floating on this, uh, this great chasm. It stands on these pillars, uh, and those are the depths of the abysses. But the indescribable judgments of the underworld, for sure, we're talking about the punishments in Gehenna. These two, even the punishments in Gehenna, uh, they follow this natural order. The basin of the boundless sea, gathered together by his creative action into its reservoirs, does not flow beyond the barrier surrounding it, Instead, it behaves just as he ordered it. For he said, thus far you shall come, your waves shall break within you. Which is a quotation from Job, a famous passage from Job, where Job is describing, describing the creation. He describes the sea. He says, you know, Hashem draws a line on the earth. He lays, he lays this out and he says to the waves of the sea, you can come this far and no further. And this is what we call shore. You know, it's part of the basic uh, Hebrew creation story is God separated between the water and the dry land, right? Uh, the ocean, impassable by men. And remember, in Clement's day, the ocean is impassable. We're not, you know, you go beyond the Mediterranean Sea, and what do you have? Water forever, as far as ever, anybody knew, you know. Water to, until it go, drains off the end of the earth. It was... Uh, the idea with the big Atlantic out there. The ocean, impassable by men, and the worlds beyond it are directed by the same ordinances of the master. So you kind of get this view of the first century mind, just how big, how you know, mysterious the beyond is. The season, spring, and the summer, and the autumn, and the winter give way in succession one to the other in peace. The winds from different quarters fulfill their ministry in the proper season without disturbance. The ever-flowing springs created for enjoyment and health give without fail their life-sustaining breasts to mankind. Even the smallest living things come together in harmony and peace. He's talking about uh, you know, the, the whole... Of creation, the, the ecosystem, the biology, everything has its place, everything has its function, everything works together. All these things the great creator and master of the universe ordered to exist in peace and harmony, thus doing good to all things. It reminds me, this whole argument reminds me of a Hasidic teaching that where it says in Deuteronomy, a man is the tree of the field. It says, uh, why does Hashem call a man a tree of the field? Well, when a man is doing God's will, when a man is doing God's will, he's like a tree of the field. How so? And this is just one Hasidic lesson. Uh, well, a tree is always doing what a tree is supposed to be doing. A tree is never like in rebellion. A tree grows, it has leaves, it's, it sheds its leaves. It's, you know, the tree, just by its very standing there and growing and being a tree, 
is perfectly fulfilling Hashem's will. You could say this also about a rock, but in, in this teaching it's a tree. Okay? Whereas human beings, you know, if we're not obeying Hashem's will, if we're not uh, you know, uh, submitting ourselves to God, and to his scriptures and to the commandments, then we're not fulfilling our purpose. But when we're fulfilling our purpose, uh, then, then we're like uh, the tree. Uh, which uh, it says in Deuteronomy, you know, you don't cut down the fruit tree, it's bearing good fruit. And this uh, reminds me also of the master, uh, John the Baptist, teaching about the tree that bears good fruit, the tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down, thrown into the fire, and Yeshua picks up on that as well. That's sort of along the same lines of what Clement is saying here with nature. Nature's always, nature's behaving itself. Nature's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. What's the matter with you guys, right? So... All these things the great creator and the master of the universe ordered to exist in peace and harmony. So why can't you get along? <laughs> That's what he's saying. Thus doing good to all things, but especially abundantly to us who have taken refuge in his compassionate mercies through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory and the majesty forever and ever. Amen. The laws of creation are functioning, you know, bringing forth all these, the produce and the abundance of the earth for everything, for the benefit of all things, but especially for our benefit who have taken refuge in the Messiah. What is this? How, how is nature especially operating for believers? You know, in what way is, uh, is, is nature nicer to us? It really isn't. Nature is pretty impartial. Believers get sick, unbelievers get sick. Believers uh, are healthy, unbelievers are healthy. A believer plants a crop, it grows. An unbeliever plants a crop, it grows. You know, So this begs the question, what are you talking about, Clement? I think what he's talking about here is the Messianic era. He says, because in the Messianic era, we have all these prophecies about how the earth is going to yield this incredible abundance for Israel, and how even the nature of animals will be changed so they'll live peaceably together, and you know everyone's going to have their own vine and fig tree. The hills are going to drip with new wine and, and run with honey, and on and on, prophecy after prophecy. And Paul speaks about how the creation is groaning, waiting for this revelation of, of the redemption. Nature itself is in anticipation of this. So I think he's referring to this idea of the miraculous fertility and the abundance of the Messianic era when he says, all these things the great creator has ordered, especially abundantly to us who have taken refuge in his compassionate mercies through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory and the majesty forever and ever. Amen, which is our first doxology. It won't be our last one, but it's our first doxology in Clement. So, I want you to know what a doxology is. Do you know what a doxology is? That's a doxology. I don't know what doxology really means. What we have here is a standardized liturgical unit that shows up all the time in apostolic writings, in really old Jewish writings, and certainly in um, early church literature. We find these doxologies as well. Maybe I can explain it this way. You're all familiar with the bracha, with uh, the standard bracha of, of you know, Jewish liturgy. It's like, it's like the basic brick, the basic Lego block of Jewish liturgy is a bracha. And everything is kind of built around moving these brachas around and hooking them up and that sort of thing. So the bracha follows this liturgical formula, Baruch Atah Hashem, uh, you know, 
Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who such and such, you know, does such and such, so and so, so forth, and Amen. Right? So, you know, like we'd say the Amidah, the 18 Brachot, the uh, Shimone Esrei. Every one of them follows that formula. You must have noticed this by now. <laughs> you know, whether you're uh, breaking bread or wine or saying your, you know, morning, evening prayers, whatever, it's all, it's barukata this, barukata that, right? That's because that's a liturgical formula. A doxology is another kind of liturgical formula that used to exist in the days of the temple, and scholars believe it was part of the temple liturgies, these, these doxologies. They're, a doxology is essentially a long amen. And our Kaddish prayer is a form of a doxology, the Kaddish that we, we say that hooks up all the, um, you know, you, we say the Kaddish between different parts of the prayer service. The Kod- Why do we say that over and over? Do you ever wonder that? Like if you're in, this, you're, you're in a synagogue service, you're at Beth Emanuel service, you're like, well, we already said that. <laughs> I already prayed that. You know, it's getting redundant. Uh, so, why, why? What's the function of the kaddish? What's it doing? Do you ever wonder about that? It serves a specific function in the prayer services themselves. If you picture the different parts of the prayer service, like train cars, okay. So, for example, the morning blessings would be a train car. Right, and then the next tra- next car in the train is going to be the sacrifices korbanot, right? Yeah. Okay, so sacrifice next train car. Then what comes after that? Pesukah de Zimra, Psalms. We say the song. That's the next train car. Then what comes after that? The blessings before the Shema, right? Next one. Then what comes after that? Well, obviously the Shema and and, and the Amidah. But what comes after that? Torah service, okay? And then after that, Musaf, right? So between all of these different things, all the, you'll have a Kaddish. And even in the Torah service, there's a Kaddish between the Torah reading and the Haftar reading, right? What do you have between train cars? Hitches. The Kaddish is essentially a hitch between one section of a prayer service and another. It's, it's a liturgical signal that we're moving, we're finished that, amen, and we're going on to the next stage. Doxologies also have a, a, a place, or they had, they're not used anymore. You don't see doxologies in the Siddur. Here and there, there's like a ghost of a doxology. But um, they also, they had a role of, of being a big amen. You know, um, and here's how you know it's a doxology. A doxology always follows a specific pattern. Number one, uh, it has an address, ordinarily to Hashem, but you use some title for Hashem. The apostles brought in uh, addressing doxologies to the Messiah as well, an aggressively high Christological innovation, uh, which would be similar to saying, uh, Baruch Atah Yeshua, you know, it's like, whoa, <laughs> hello. Uh, so it's one of the more uh, controversial innovations of apostolic uh, Christology. Anyway, an apostolic doxology will either address Hashem or it'll address the Master. And then it will ascribe glory. 
there's always an ascription of glory. And this could be, this can be as short as, to whom be the glory, which is very, you know, that's the, that's the, the minimum. Or it might be, to whom be the glory, the splendor, the greatness, the, you know, and so on and so on. And you can just load on there as much glory as you want. But then you have to follow that with a statement of duration. And how long should this all be ascribed? Forever and ever, or until such and such. And then finally, it's punctuated with an amen. So if you find these four things, an address to Hashem or to the Son, an ascription of glory, a statement of duration, and then an amen, you have a doxology. So what Aaron uh, did with uh, our liturgy that we use here at Beth Emanuel, this is because I, I wanted to see these doxologies. I thought, you know, if you're going to do a messianic liturgy, you should have doxologies back in it because the apostles are using them all the time. So he said, well, the doxology works kind of like it's very similar to the Kaddish. So every time we do the Kaddish, we also do a doxology. And that's how that works here at Beth Emanuel. Now, that was sort of a distraction from the text. He says, take care, dear friends, lest his many benefits, that's God's many benefits and good things that he's doing for us, turn into a judgment upon us all, as will happen if we fail to live worthily of him and to do harmoniously those things which are good and well-pleasing in his sight. This is a warning. You know, if, uh, you, know, um, you, know you hear, count your blessings, don't take, take things for granted, and so on and so forth. But uh, also, if the, you know, where Hashem has blessed you, uh, this is a cause for rejoicing and that sort of thing, but it also should be a cause for fear of the Lord because uh, that could easily come back to bite you if you don't respond appropriately. It's kind of like in the Song of Moses where Hashem says, oh, I did this and I did this and I did this. I found you in the wilderness. I carried you on eagle's wings. I, I supplied you honey from the rock and, and on and on. And he says, I did this and did this. And what did you do? Yeshurun grew fat and kicked and, you know, and, and, uh, and threw off the yoke and became stubborn and rebellious. And as we, uh, as, as we consider the goodness of God to us, we, have to, we, we, should, we should keep in mind um, that his blessings they should invoke a response from us of obedience. For he says somewhere, the Spirit of the Lord is a lamp searching the depths of the heart. Well, that somewhere, we can help Clement out a little bit here, of the Spirit of the Lord, it, that's from Proverbs 20, 27, which, and this is a big verse for the mystics. The Spirit of the Lord is a lamp, a, a light searching the depths of the soul, searching the depths of, of man. Let us realize how near he is and that nothing escapes him. We're talking about the eminence of God. Uh, either our thoughts or the plans which we make. Hashem knows everything we're thinking. He knows our motivations. He, he knows our thoughts before we think them. We don't have any secrets. There's no secrets, no secrets before God, right? It is right, therefore, that we should not be deserters from his will. You know, the image of a deserter. We're in the Roman era. You know, a, a Roman, uh, if you're a Roman legionary and you desert the ranks, you get caught, you're going to be put to death. So the idea is we're in the army of the Lord. Don't be a deserter. Let us, let us offend. This is very, very seldom that you'll find in the Bible it tells us to offend someone. Clement says it's a good idea to offend foolish and senseless men who exalt themselves and boast in the arrogance of their words 
rather than God. Not very Minnesota-like or Wisconsin-like to offend people. They don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to get... But Clement says, you know what? With wicked men, it's better to offend them than to worry about, oh, I don't want to offend him. Who are we talking about? Who are these senseless men? These are the schismatics. That was a band. Did I say that before? The schismatics. The, the, these are the schismatics in Corinth that he's alluding to. He says, I'd rather have you offend these men who have thrown off the old guard and, and taken over. Offend those kind of people, but let us fear the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, whose blood was given for us. And let us respect our leaders and let us honor our elders. This is a formula that you'll find frequently expressed in first century, second century writings. I'm thinking particularly of the epistles of Ignatius, but we also see it in the Didache. This idea of it's axiomatic among the congregations that the people are told to honor the bishop over their congregation as the Lord himself, as the master himself. And so there's, and then there, there's this chain of authority, you know, just as, just as the master honored Hashem and the disciples honor the master, uh, you should honor the bishop and the elders. Uh, you know, the bishop is just the, is, is one of the elders. So it says, fear the Lord and respect our leaders and honor our elders. Which elders are we referring to here? We're not talking about the new elders, in Corinth, they were talking about the old elders. <laughs> Let us instruct our young with the instruction that leads to the fear of God. Let us guide our women toward that which is good. Now here's some advice for women. Number one, let them reveal a disposition to purity worthy of admiration. What does that mean? Uh, you know, that they should be chaste, not, uh, not flirtatious, not flaunting their sexual allure. Let them exhibit a sincere desire to be gentle. Women are naturally gentle, aren't they? Well, see now, it says let them exhibit a sincere desire to be gentle. <laughs> let them demonstrate by their silence the moderation of their tongue. Let them show their love without partiality and in holiness equally toward all those who fear God. All right, so that's for women. Now for children. Let our children receive the instruction which is in the Messiah, so the teachings of Yeshua. You want to raise your children in the teachings of Yeshua. Let them learn how strong humility is before God. Not something we ordinarily associate with humility is strength. But Clement says, you know, there's great strength in humility. Let them learn what pure love is able to accomplish before God. And how the fear of Him is good and great and saves all those who live in in it in holiness and with a pure mind. For he is the searcher of thoughts and desires, which is the same sentiment he, he brought up earlier. You know, uh, nothing escapes him. Either our thoughts or the plans we make. He is the searcher of thoughts and desires. I would say motivations. His breath is in us, which is a reference to the neshama that Hashem breathed into Adam. The soul, the immortal soul, the neshama, is the breath. It's the breath of Hashem that he breathes into every human being. So he says, his breath is in us and when he so desires, he will take it away. Now what does this remind you of? Liturgically speaking, there's a prayer in the morning blessings that you might be familiar with. It says, oh my God, the neshama that you breathed within me is pure. 
you put it in me, you preserve it within me, and eventually you'll take it from me. And then in the time to come, ultimately you'll restore it to me. As long as the neshama is within me, I praise you and, and thank you. So it's this idea, Hashem puts the neshama in you, Hashem will take the neshama out of you. What happens when He takes the neshama out of you? You're dead. That's death. All right, any questions on chapter 21? You see how quickly this is going now? We're really moving. Now, faith in Christ confirms all these things, for He Himself, through the Holy Spirit, thus calls, Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life? There's that uh, the verse, uh, Who is the man who desires life? This is the, uh, was the title of uh, the Chofetz you know, Chaim's book. Uh, who is the man who desires life? Uh, he who desires life, who loves to see good days, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Now, you're, you're familiar with this, aren't you? This is a psalm, right? What psalm is this? This is Psalm 34. Psalm 34. It's one of the psalms in Pesukah de Zimra for Shabbat. Psalm 34. Uh, so why does he say, the, you know, Christ confirms these things, and then he quotes a psalm? You know, he makes it sound like that the Messiah, these are like a teaching of the Messiah, but it's just a psalm. It's a psalm of David, Psalm 34. So we find that this is a common uh, apostolic idea, is that when David wrote the Psalms, he was writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Messiah was speaking prophetically. The Spirit of Messiah was speaking prophetically. And so this is why you have Psalms like, you know, Psalm 22, for example, you know, the is cited all the time in the apostles in regard to the crucifixion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And strong bulls surround me. This is Messiah talking about his own uh, suffering in, in Psalm 22. I think we looked at that Psalm last week, uh, Psalm 22. And so that's what he's saying here. Now, but I've never seen uh, this applied to Psalm 34, as if this is the teaching of Yeshua himself, the words of Yeshua himself being spoken through the, the Psalm of David. Yeah, so now this here's the idea. When we're referring to the Psalms of David, your Mashiach, it creates this double meaning. We say David, the Psalms of David, the Psalms of your Messiah. And so all the Psalms of David become, in the apostolic mind, the voice of Messiah also speaking. And it's pertinent to the here and now. And so you find the apostles come with just the most amazing interpretations of the Psalms, applying them to their, their day and their circumstance on that basis. It's a totally, uh, you, you would, it's one of those things where you would get kicked out of seminary if you tried to uh, interpret the Psalms that way. Uh, but the apostles could get away with it. <clears throat> So he quotes the rest of this psalm, or several verses of this psalm, and then he says, Furthermore, and he quotes another psalm in verse 8, Many are the afflictions of the sinner, but mercy will surround those who set their hope on the Lord. Any questions on, on chapter 22? What's he saying? Basically, he's, he's teaching, the, he's saying, look, even the Messiah says, you know, the fear of the Lord, you know, that Hashem... Uh, rewards the righteous. He punishes the wicked. Many are the afflictions of the sinner, but mercy will surround those who set their hope in the Lord. And it goes on in uh, the next chapter, chapter 23. You know, you shouldn't doubt this. Don't doubt this, that this principle works. It says, The Father who is merciful in all things and ready to do good has compassion on those who fear Him and gently, lovingly bestows His favors on those who draw near to Him with singleness of mind. Therefore, 
Let us not be double-minded, nor let our soul indulge in false ideas about his excellent and glorious gifts. So double-minded, in the Greek, it's uh, liter- literally dipsukos. You can hear psych in there. It's double-souled, having two souls. In Hebrew, it's double-hearted. The double-hearted person, he's, he's on the fence. He's going both ways, this way, that way. I mean, the thing with tshuva, the reason we need tshuva is because we're double-minded. You know, If we were single-minded, if we we're single-hearted, you don't need to repent. Because unless you sinned accidentally, uh, you're not going to transgress against, against the Creator. So let's not be double-minded. They reminded me of the passage in James where it says, Draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Other passages like this. Nor let our soul indulge in false ideas about His excellent and glorious gifts. What does this mean? False ideas about His excellent and glorious gifts. Well, I think he only has one false idea. I mean, there's, surely there's many false ideas we could have about God's excellent glories and gifts, but I think the only idea, the only false idea he has in mind here is that you'll get away with it. That whatever it is you're doing, you'll get away with it. That's the false idea that he's challenging here. He says, let this scripture be far from us, where he says, this is a very interesting scripture. It's a very interesting scripture. So listen to this closely. He wants this scripture to be far from us. I'm not exactly sure what that means. I mean, ordinarily, you don't say, let a scripture be far from us. He says, we don't want to have anything to do with this scripture. (laughs) This particular scripture, we want to keep far from us. And here it is. Wretched are the double-minded, those who doubt in their soul and say, we heard these things even in the days of our fathers, and look, we have grown old. And none of these things have happened to us, you fools. Compare yourselves to a tree, or take a vine. First it sheds its leaves, then a shoot comes, then a leaf, then a flower, and after these, a sour grape, and then a full, ripe bunch. Okay, so first question, where is this from? And it's one of those scriptures that we don't have. It's not in our Bible. There is no, we don't know the source. I mean, not only is it not in our Bible, it's not in any of the outtakes from the Bible either. It's not in any apocryphal literature that we have. So this is the second time that we've encountered in Clement a passage that he quotes that we don't know the source of. We don't have this particular scripture that he's quoting. But I think Peter did. And remember, Clement is the disciple of of Peter. You know the passage in Peter that I'm thinking of? It's uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. Keep 2 Peter back in the in the back of the New Testament, you know, keep you with the Jewish books. <laughs> so we always like to joke that they they put all the they put all the Jewish epistles in the back and keep Paul up front. Hopefully nobody reads <laughs> reads that far. 2 Peter chapter 3. In verse 2, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning 
of creation. And they deliberately overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world was then, it, it existed then, it was deluged with water and perished. This is, this is from Peter. So he says, you know, people who, people who talk like this, that, hey, you know, we've heard that there's going to be a judgment. People have been saying that forever. There never is. And he says, they forget there was. There was a flood. Hashem wiped out the, he wiped out humanity. He wiped out the whole human population. And he'll do it again. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's Peter's point. But it sounds to me like Peter has in mind that he's alluding to the same text that Clement is quoting, where you have these scoffers saying, we've heard these things even in the days of our fathers, and look, we have grown old, and none of these things have happened to us. So what I'm suggesting is that there's a source that we don't have that both Clement and Peter are relying on. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good passage. We should put together a Bible someday of uh, of uh, or a, a book of the Bible of all these uh, strays, don't you think? That would be fun. Uh, just a book of stray scriptures quoted by these fellows. You know, James, if, for example, James himself, and we see this in the, in the New Testament even, where they'll quote, they'll say, as scripture says, and then they'll pull something out. It's like, huh? From where? When did scripture ever say? I like that passage in James where he says, as scripture says, Hashem jealously jealously desires this spirit he has put in man. Where does it say that? Anyway, so here we have another one. Let's see if we can understand it. We get the wretched are the double-minded part, and that's why he wants this scripture to be far from us. Because we don't want to be double-minded. Wretched are the double-minded, those who doubt in their soul. What are they doubting? They're doubting that there's going to be consequences for their sin. They said, we heard these things, you know, we've heard that there's going to be a judgment. It's never happened. So he says, you fools, compare yourself to a tree. Take a vine. What do we have going on here? An appeal to nature. First it sheds its leaves, then the shoot comes, then the leaf, then the flower. After these, a sour grape. Then a full ripe bunch of grapes. And these are the grapes of wrath. You see what's going on there. It's like, yeah, you say, okay, there's no consequences, but it takes a while. It's going to come eventually. You're, you will reap what you sow, is the message there. Notice that in a brief time, the fruit of the tree reaches maturity, Clement says. Truly, his purpose will be accomplished quickly and suddenly, just as the scripture also testifies, he will come quickly and not delay, which is a quotation from the Greek version of Isaiah. And... The Lord will come suddenly into his temple, even the Holy One, whom you expect, which is a quotation from Malachi. So these these are references. These are two apostolic passages. I mean, they're not, I mean, that the apostles used, apparently, in reference to the coming of Messiah and the judgment. You can find them in the Greek of Isaiah 13 22. It also says it in the Hebrew, but not quite that nicely. And it's in Malachi chapter 3. Verse 1. Both of these passages remind me of another famous passage, and that's from Habakkuk 2 3, where it says, For the vision, this vision of the Messianic era, is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. And the sages read this when they read this passage from Habakkuk 
So it's the same thing Clement is doing in Malachi and Isaiah. When the sages read this, they read the pronouns as he instead of it. It's, it works that way in Hebrew. It works that way in Greek. Uh, so you can read it this way. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. He hastens toward the goal. He will not fail. We're talking about the Messiah. Though he tarries, wait for him. And this is the passage. The sages read the passage this way. And this is the passage then that Maimonides derived the principle of faith, which we uh, derived the anima amin. Though he tarries, I will await him every day. It's one of the 13 principles of Jewish faith, right there. <coughs> Belief in the coming of Messiah. So Clement says, don't be like that, that guy who doubts that this is going to happen. You know, stay far away from, from these doubters. Who, and and don't, don't allow yourself to start to think, eh, I don't know, maybe there's not actually, maybe the Messiah is not coming back. Maybe there's not a judgment. Maybe there's not recompense for, for sin. All right, chapter 24. We're still working on our appeal to nature. He says, Let us consider, dear friends, how the Master continually points out to us the coming resurrection of which he made the Lord Jesus Christ the first fruit when he raised him from the dead. Clement has picked that up from Paul. Paul spoke of Yeshua as the first fruit from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. And when I was, I was teaching a couple weeks ago here on the resurrection on Saturday, I say, what does this mean, this first fruit? of What does it mean he's the first fruit of the resurrection? So the point is that all humanity is going to be resurrected because Yeshua is resurrected as a first fruit. A first fruit is like the first fruit to come on the, on the, the, fruit, on the tree or whatever, but it's a sign that the rest, the rest of the fruit is coming. You know, it's not the last fruit <laughs> is the point. The first fruit's not the last fruit. So we, we anticipate a complete resurrection of all humanity in the future. Messiah is the first one, the first blossoming of this promise. All right. We understand that. Okay, so uh, let us observe, dear friends, the resurrection that regularly occurs. And now here's another appeal to nature. Uh, he's going to prove the resurrection to us. Day and night, show us the resurrection. How so? Well... The night falls asleep and the day arises. So at night, uh, it's like death. And then the sun comes up. It's like being raised from the dead. The day depart, the night's return. Or take crops, for example. How and in what manner does the sowing take place? The sower went forth and cast into the earth each of the seeds. These seeds falling in the earth, dry and bare, decay. But then out of their decay, the majesty of the master's providence or, or the Lord's providence raises them up. And from the one seed, many grow and bear fruit. Okay, that's a very common analogy in rabbinic writings for proof of the resurrection. The Pharisees used this argument all the time. So how do you know there's going to be a resurrection? Now, well, just take a look. You know, the seed goes in the ground, the seed dies, and then it comes to life. Yeshua used the same uh, analogy uh, as he was trying to war tell his disciples, warn his disciples about his coming suffering. And uh, Paul uses the same analogy in 1 Corinthians 15 as he's discussing what kind of bodies will the resurrected have. We see the same analogy in the Talmud where um, one of the rabbis is asked um, if, uh, 
if the dead will be raised in their clothing or not. And he says, well, look at, you know, a seed goes into the ground naked, but it comes up clothed. You know, it, uh, the plant comes up. Clement's just using the exact same argument for the resurrection. Why? What's this have to do with anything, This the, the resurrection? What's this have to do with his overall theme? Right now we're on, we're on a theme of reward and punishment. And the resurrection is a big part of that. Or he's trying to, he's trying to convince us to act in a noble way, to act in an orderly way, peace, peaceably. And he's warning us not to think that uh, there are no consequences for our actions. And so now he's taking us to the resurrection. So see, there's going to be a resurrection. For example, those are consequences. Then there will be consequences. And so he's he's asked to prove the resurrection to us just briefly. So in chapter 25, he gives another example from nature. He's going to appeal to nature again to prove the resurrection. He says, let us observe the remarkable sign which is seen in the regions of the east that is in the vicinity of Arabia. If you live in Rome, if you live in Rome like Clement does, the east is like, you know, that's that's really exotic, foreign, foreign lands, Parthia, Arabia. Nabatea out there. So anything could happen out there in the east. I suppose if you lived in the east, you felt that way about the west. When I was a kid, I lived in a little town of 800, and we always talked about in the cities. You know, like, and there was always like, people, the kids talking to each other, the most incredible things were always happening. And then you'd say, where did you hear that? And then, hey, that's not true. And they'd say, no, it's true. It's, it's in the cities. <laughs> it's like you could get away with anything if you just said in the cities. And by in the cities, of course, that's Minnesota speak for in the Twin Cities, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. That's kind of how this works for me. It's seen in the East. What is it? There is a bird in the East that's named the Phoenix. This bird is the only one of its species, and it lives for 500 years. When the time of its dissolution and death arrives, it makes for itself a coffin-like nest of frankincense and myrrh and other spices into which, its time being completed, it enters and dies. But as the flesh decays, and Clement's giving us a little bit of a naturalistic explanation of this, uh, really what happens to the phoenix is he bursts into flame when it's time to die. He goes in that nest and bursts into flame. But Clement says, as the flesh decays, a certain worm is born which is nourished by the juices of the dead bird. It's Clement's theory. (laughs) Actually, the worm comes out of the ashes. And eventually, this worm grows wings. Then, when it has grown strong, it takes up that coffin-like nest containing the bones of its parent and carries them away, and it makes its way from the country of Arabia to Egypt to a city called Heliopolis, which is uh, in Cairo, uh, modern Cairo. means city of the sun. There, in broad daylight, in the sight of all, it flies to the altar of the sun and deposits them there, and then it sets out on its return. So, the priests then examine the public record of the dates after this bird has arrived and deposited its nest, and they find that it has come to the end of the 500th year since the phoenix was last seen. All right. Okay, so Clement believes that this is true. Uh, and this is one of the reasons that Clement uh, is, is one of the reasons cited that Clement didn't make it into the Bible after all was because of this deal with the Phoenix.
but he's using it. You can see how he's using it. He's using it as an appeal to nature. See, so this naturally, this sort of thing naturally happens. So why is it so hard to believe in a resurrection? He goes on. He says, in chapter twenty-six, how then? You know, given that this amazing bird lives for five hundred years, it burns up, it then comes back to life. If something like something crazy and impossible like that can happen, how can we consider it to be some great and marvelous thing if the creator of the universe shall bring about a resurrection of those who have served him in holiness and the assurance of a good faith when he shows us, by a bird no less, the magnificence of his promise? It's fabulous. You know, it's a fabulous argument. You can't argue with that. Unless, of course, like us in the modern Western world, we don't believe in the phoenix. But Clement certainly did. You know, the point... So, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know the evidence. I don't know the facts on the phoenix. You know, who said? And now he's going to quote some passages from the Psalms. And you will raise me up and I will praise you. And I, will lay, and I lay down and I slept. And I rose up for you, for you are with me. See, he's, just, he's pulling passages out of the Psalms, more evidence of the resurrection. And again, Job says, And you will raise this flesh of mine, which has endured all these things. Proofs from Scripture now regarding the resurrection. All right. Any questions on the phoenix? That's chapter 25 and chapter 26, the legend of the phoenix. One thing I've neglected to point out, another passage for the resurrection is Psalm 92.12. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. This is where the phoenix trouble comes from for Clement and for many church writers because the word in Greek the in, in the Greek in the Septuagint the word for palm tree the righteous man will flourish like a palm tree is phoenix which looks like phoenix so they read it they read the passage in Psalm 92 12 to say the righteous man will flourish like the phoenix he will grow like a cedar in Lebanon so what does it mean to flourish like the phoenix if not as a reference to the resurrection? I like that a lot. I think that's pretty cool. That um, So I think we should maybe bring that back, that whole like phoenix thing. Okay, any, any further thoughts on 25, 26, the phoenix and the resurrection? All right, then it's chapter 27, and this will be our last, we'll just finish up here with chapter 27. What's the point of all this? The point of all this talk about the resurrection, what's he getting at? He says, with this hope, the hope of the resurrection, therefore, let our souls be bound to him who is faithful in his promises and righteous in his judgments. He who commanded us not to lie, all the more will not lie himself, for nothing is impossible with God except to lie. Therefore, let our faith in him be rekindled within us, and let us understand that all things are near to him. By his majestic word he established the universe, and by a word he can destroy it. Who will say to him, what have you done? Or who will resist the might of his strength? That's from Wisdom, the uh, Wisdom of Solomon. We're quoting from... uh, which if you've that's in the Bible actually if you if you're Catholic, right? Wisdom, the book of wisdom. Wisdom of Solomon 12:12 12, 12, says uh, for who shall say what have you done or who shall stand in thy judgment who shall accuse thee for the nations that perish whom you made or who shall come to stand against you to be avenged 
for the unrighteous men. Wisdom 12.12. 12. I like this. I like that Clement quotes it, and I like the passage, uh, because it also is another piece that appears in, in the Siddur, doesn't it? If you're, um, if you're praying along, you're, you're praying along, you do the morning blessings, you come to the end of the section, that you do the Akedah, you come to the end of the section of the morning blessings, um, and right before you start the Korbanot, you'll come to a prayer called Atahu. It is you, Atahu. And in this prayer, there's a line that says, and it's always struck me as unusual, it just kind of sticks out, because it says, Who among all your handiwork, those above and those below, can say to you, What are you doing? What have you done? What are you doing? And the same line comes then in, in, the, um, in the High Holiday Prayers a couple times. And I never knew where it was from. So then I, th- I was reading Clement, and I thought, Oh, it's from Clement. But no, Clement's getting it from the Book of, of Wisdom. There you have an example of the sages who put together the prayers, also drawing on the same sources as, as the apostolic writers, the wisdom of Solomon. So who says to, who, who's, who can stand up to God and accuse him and say, what have you done? Who will resist the might of his strength? He will do all things when he wills, as he wills, and none of those things decreed by him will fail. All things are in his sight. Nothing escapes his will. Seeing that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Do you see where we have come? Day pours forth speech to day. Night proclaims knowledge to night. And there are neither words nor speeches whose voices are not heard. So we've come all the way around back to Psalm 19 and our appeal, our appeal to nature. How can you how can you argue with God? How can you fight the system, so to speak? Hashem's system, the whole universe is running according to his will. So Clement, this it's a long argument. He's made a long argument to basically say, uh, you know, there's a there's a set or there's there's a proper way to do things. There's a proper order to do things. And as as he moves on you're going to see how this long argument, this appeal to nature that we've looked at tonight, fits into his, his broader argument uh, of trying to reconcile the Corinthians with the old leadership. I told you, we get seven chapters, what is that, seven, eight chapters, eight chapters. It's great stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's really beautiful. There's some of those passages that were astonishing you know the the poetry of of some of those passages when he's he's laying out creation for us and that sort of thing it's really astonishing beautiful writing 